Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Post Wrestling. It's John Pollock here with you, and buckle up. We've got a lot of mixed martial arts news to go through and dissect, and I thought the perfect man to join me. Uh, you have known him for years from the Ariel Hawani MMA show in its current form, now of ESPN himself, New York Rick, who seems to have gone legit here because now we're starting to be introduced to the the Eric Jackman brand uh, through Twitter. A big welcome to New York Rick, or should I say Bristol, Connecticut, New York Rick. <laughs> Thank you, John. No, um, I am actually still living in New York, in Queens, New York, and commuting to Bristol every single day. Beautiful Bristol. Um, so I am still New York Rick through and through. There is no um, faking it. I'm, I'm still New York Rick, and I will always be New York Rick. Always, always tied to those roots. That's right. A man of loyalty. Well, uh, we have lots to discuss here, and off the top, I just want to say uh, congratulations to all of your success. I have uh, watched from afar as you have ascended in the uh, the MMA media landscape, uh, joining your your pal Ariel Hawani over at ESPN. I've been very happy to watch all of your success that you've been having. I mean, just taking the world over one day at a time is New York Rick. I truly believe you, and I don't want to get too emotional, but I owe you a lot um, for your continued uh, questioning of Ariel Hawani and my status um, <laughs> on previously the MMA Hour, now Ariel Hawani's MMA show, um, and uh, you being the only one beating the drum uh, when I was when I was just a young pup, and now I'm I'm all grown up and uh, I'm working uh, at the Worldwide Leader and enjoying it greatly. Well, uh, we're going to dive right into things because we have uh, we're we're chatting on a Wednesday morning, and of course, I already knew we'd have like a ton of stuff to talk about. But <laughs> why not throw in a championship being relinquished and said champion on his way out, uh, suspended for a one year? That is the state of TJ Dillashaw, who Wednesday morning posted on Instagram. To all my fans, I wanted to be the first one to let you know that USADA and the New York State Athletic Commission have informed me of an adverse finding in a test taken for my last fight, that being the Henry Cejudo fight. While words can't even begin to express how disappointed I am at this time, please know that I'm working with my team to understand what has occurred and how to resolve this situation as quickly as possible. Out of fairness and respect to the rest of my division, I've informed the UFC that I'll be voluntarily relinquishing my title while I deal with this matter. I want to thank all of you in advance for the support. And your colleague Ariel Hawani has since relayed that the New York State Athletic Commission has suspended Dillashaw for one year. Uh, and with that comes a fine as well. Uh, huge ramifications to the bantamweight division. Uh, your instant reaction to this. Uh, this is a big blow to TJ Dillashaw and really creates uh, in some ways chaos to the bantamweight division. But I'm sure if you polled a number of the fighters, this would be a bit of a resolution to the the kind of blocking that the bantamweight division had essentially been on hold amongst a number of these top contenders. Yeah, two things immediately come to mind. The first is what you just mentioned, that I actually think this is a benefit to the bantamweight division as far as the rest of the contenders go. It seemed like Henry Cejudo and TJ Dillashaw were locked in an entanglement that was not going to go away, um, and the rest of the bantamweight division was going to have to sit on the sidelines and wait till that untangled itself. Um, so I think the rest of the bantamweights are um, happy about this news in a, in a certain sense. Now, granted, nobody's you know uh, look, looking for this to be the way that it happens, but they do now have a clear path to a title that has been relinquished by TJ Dillashaw. My second uh, immediate reaction was that this is a, a huge fall from grace. Not two months ago, we were thinking about TJ Dillashaw as potentially somebody to be holding two titles in the UFC and is now holding none. 
Um, he has relinquished the bantamweight belt. He was competing for the flyweight belt in January um, against Henry Cejudo. Um, so it is a huge fall from grace for somebody who has been considered a pound-for-pound pound great uh, for a very long time. Now, there's still a ton of detail that can potentially come out or it may or may not. For example, what he has, te- you know, what the test actually said. We know no details about that yet. Um, I'm sure Ariel is, is on the case and we will potentially know that soon. Um, but there, there's still a lot to be uh, seen and, and reported in this saga with TJ Dillashaw. But, you know, right now, Wednesday morning, um, I think it clears up the bantamweight title picture in a way that it hasn't been in a long time. So um, it's, it's an interesting path forward for the USC. Obviously, there's several options where you could go with this championship picture. I think the the automatic first option should be Henry Cejudo and Marlon Marias. Do you see anyone else having um, a stronger claim to fighting for this vacant title? Yeah, I mean, I think Henry has done a really good job of of making it clear that he wants to go up to 135 and and chase that title. Um, I personally would rather see Henry down at flyweight competing with the likes of, of Joseph Benavidez. And then you could put Marlon Marais in there against um, somebody else. Let's say Aljamain Sterling or um, Rafael Asuncao. There's there, you know, there's running that back, even though that just happened. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of contenders in that division that would probably have a better stake to the claim than Henry Cejudo. But if I'm doing what fight I think will garner the most attention, um, I do think it is Henry versus Marlon. In a strange way, that, you know, kind of the story going into that Dillashaw Cejudo fight was the idea that Dillashaw winning this title could put the flyweight division in the graveyard. And I wonder that if Henry Cejudo is tapped to fight for this vacant championship, does this kind of expedite that process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a, a realistic possibility because now um, Henry's path to defending this title is a lot clearer. Um, there, there, you know, TJ is on the shelf for a little bit for, for one year, if, if the suspension holds, um, and I think the other bantamweight contenders are going to have a renewed focus now chasing somebody who they haven't competed with before. Now there was a lot of duplication at the top of the bantamweight division and people that had faced TJ Dillashaw, whether it was on the way up, um, or faced each other. This gives them potentially if, if Henry is to fight for that title and win it, this gives them a new opponent to, to chase after and, and a new name for the record. So, um, I do think that we will see um, f- him move away from flyweight and, and ultimately end up at bantamweight. Uh, you know, we're just, you know, just reacting to this news as it's kind of in the moment uh, of happening. But wh- what do you think about how TJ Dillashaw handled this news? I mean, he was the one to disclose this news. And obviously, there's there's still a lot more details I think people are looking for. And I don't want to kind of go down the, the speculation path, but just in terms of how he decided to handle this, uh, yeah. do you think it was the best circum- uh, the best option out of terrible circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. If you, if, you know, uh, anybody hasn't been following along, there is no longer a requirement for these, um, these tests to be disclosed. Um, so TJ voluntarily um, disclosed this on Instagram. Now, I think there's probably an expectation that over the course of what is now, you know, determined to be a one year suspension, there was a possibility that this would come out. There would be questions about why TJ Dillashaw is is not fighting. Um, And and I think that would lead to speculation. Um, But I do give him credit, uh, much like I believe one of the the more uh, recent examples was um, Sean O'Malley did this where um, he was flagged by USADA and volunteered that information um, as soon as it happened in order to get ahead of it. I do think it is, it is um, 
you know, a decision that that is up to the individual athlete. And in this case, I think TJ Dillashaw felt a responsibility to do that. And and not only that, to relinquish a title that this test stems from the January fight. The January fight was not a bantamweight contest. That was that was a flyweight contest. So he is now deciding to relinquish a title that um, in 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 the effort to clear up that division and be able to to make things proceed forward for the UFC. It is it is not in relation to a, a, a title he defended or is competing for back in January. So I think it says that TJ Dillashaw is being proactive in this case, and I think that will benefit him in the court of public opinion for sure. So. Uh, we will continue to follow uh, this story as uh, more details uh, come out. But TJ Dillashaw relinquishing the UFC bantamweight title and suspended for one year by the New York State Athletic Commission. Uh, we now move on over to the story that I just assumed we would absolutely be leading off with because I think it's an enormous story with tons of ramifications. And that is the UFC announcing that they are moving away from traditional pay-per-view in the United States. And now the only way you're going to be able to order pay-per-views in the U.S. is through the ESPN Plus uh, streaming app and also tacking on another two years to their deal with uh, ESPN. Uh, Rick, was this your doing? <laughs> no, I was not behind it. There were many other people involved um, other than myself. Um, I cannot take uh, any credit for, for getting this deal done. Um, but I do know that um, within the company, you know, there, there's a, a great enthusiasm about this. I think that the like if you're basing this on a very small sample size of three months, this has been a tremendous relationship between these two. When you look at the the television viewership numbers and uh, even I, I think above estimated pay per view numbers that we've seen in the the early onset here of that added exposure on ESPN, I just think that this is such a an enormous deal um, that you look at the move away from traditional pay per view to guaranteed money that the UFC is is going to be getting in this entire deal. Um, I, I think that this greatly changes just the kind of the thought process of now what pay-per-view is and sending people to ESPN+. Plus. If you're a fighter, um, Rick, how are you reacting if you are, say, a John Jones? Are you um, – is it just status quo or do you kind of want to sit in and – or sit out and wait until you see – what is the migration period going to be like? Are fans instantly going to make this switch? Because for many that have, are set in their ways about how they watch a UFC pay-per-view, uh, this, this is a change in that, in that way in which you go about buying a pay-per-view. Yeah, certainly it's a change, and certainly um, there is a reluctance for change. But I do think um, Dana White sat down with Megan O'Leary um, for, for an extended interview that appeared on the UFC's channels and essentially laid out that it will, you know, ESPN Plus is on all your streaming apps and all your devices. Um, it will probably be easier, not harder than ever to order um, a UFC pay-per-view through this service. Um, so I do think that while there will be some initial reluctance and there will be some initial um, resistance to change, as there is with everything, as you stated, the relationship between ESPN and UFC has been super harmonious to this point, and and thus you know the re-upping and, and the decision to go um, fully in the U.S. on on pay-per-view with ESPN Plus, fans are seeing the benefit of that. The earlier cards, um, the the ease of watching this the events on ESPN Plus. So I think you know there is still a lot to be worked out. There is still a lot to, that remains to be seen, but 
the the confidence in both sides in the ability to, to execute that I think has already shown to be very high. So I think they will be mot- very motivated to to continue that relationship and and continue that that success that they've seen early on. Collective bargaining, they're not part of these kinds of negotiations. But if you're a fighter that has points in the pay-per-view, uh, this dramatically, I would say, impacts you. And from the UFC, it's it's kind of getting away from the risk that pay-per-view presents that, my God, if a fighter falls out the night before a fight and we lose a main event, now it's like you're you're getting your payment up front and certainly – there's still buys. There's still incentive to put on big shows because you can make more. But, you know, no financials have been disclosed from this deal. But it's it's got to be an enormously lucrative one for the UFC to be making such a seismic shift. And I, I do think it takes some of that leverage away uh, from fighters that you don't have that, that, you know, January 1st, you're looking at your year and knowing that making sure you make X amount on re- uh, pay-per-view revenue – now you know that, hey, worst case scenario, this is what this revenue represents. We're already going to be guaranteed a sizable amount. Yeah, certainly there's a security in the relationship, but there's also what I think is is most interesting about this. There's a, a true um, analysis of whether pay-per-view is the model of the future or whether this type of relationship is what – um, the future, you know, has in store is is what people will be gravitating toward um, as opposed to pay-per-view. And, you know, it's way too early into the relationship to, you know, to have a determination on that front. Um, but I think this, this you know, now seven-year relationship will be a, a real test case for whether this is the future of fighting, um, whether, you know, it, it belonged on pay-per-view or whether now direct to streaming apps is is the way of of the future what what do you think becomes of fight pass a year from now uh because i I think it's kind of a different situation for you versus me because in canada there still is an international markets that is the avenue for a lot of these cards where you know there's uh in canada for instance there's eight international events that tsn who's the rights partner in canada does not have the ability to broadcast so fight pass is your only option in the u.s it's a bit different do you see fight pass um just existing as sort of this add-on that is going to feature uh, your Pancrases of the world, your Invictas, and kind of non-UFC live content. Yeah, certainly the the shift from them having UFC preliminary cards and individual fight night cards um, is is a major one. But I do think there's an appetite for more MMA. I, I think that that part is clear that um, the appetite extends beyond the UFC and Fight Pass has done a good job of capitalizing on that to this point. Um, I know recently, uh, I want to say early this year, sometime in January, they announced a lot of new signings, um, uh, different sports um, that will appear there. They have jujitsu, they have kickboxing, they have other MMA leagues like Invicta. Um, so I do think as long as they can still offer a competitive package, um, there's, there, there is a difference in um, you know, where you will find your preliminary cards and the fight night cards. But I still think there's an, there's an appetite. There's a, an ability to provide value with other offerings inside the combat sports space. So as long as fight pass can capitalize on that and do a good job of, of selecting who those partners are. Um, I do think that there's a value there. Uh, it's it kind of so much was focused on the, the pay-per-view shift and adding on the, the two years, but also in that same Megan O'Levy interview, Dana White mentions uh, signing a new seven-year deal uh, to remain on as yeah. president of the UFC. Uh, did you find any of that uh, surprising? Um, 
I, I, I think that many people cannot envision a UFC without Dana White present. Uh, but I think when the sale occurred, there was that question of, I believe at that time he had five years remaining. And the question was, well, after those five years, this guy has made his money. Uh, would he still want to stay on? Was this uh, inevitable in your mind or was there uh, a bit of surprise that he mentioned such a long-term commitment as well? I'm not surprised mostly because of what he said at the very end of the interview, which was that he doesn't like losing and he really likes winning. Um, and I think this is a, a point of reinvigoration. He has always you know, been very partial to ESPN and, and, and liked what ESPN is doing. I think this deal was the culmination of that. And I do think that um, it is it is lit a competitive fire in him that he wants to make this one of the, the major sports on one of the major sports network, if the major sports network. So um, I, I'm not surprised because of how this has played out, because of how successful the deal has been so far. I do think there's 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 a fire in Dana White that um, I'm not surprised that he's signing up for this long term. It's interesting when you look back at Dana White's path that I think what really drives this guy is taking something in the beginning phases and growing it, these projects, whether it was the UFC in 2001. And then it's, you know, he partners with Spike TV, a very fledgling network that yep. they were able to rise up together. Then you saw the launch of Fox Sports 1, where the UFC was a big partner and programming partner for them in 2013 when that launched. And I think today you look at it, yes, it's the continual growth of the UFC, but now it's ESPN Plus that's fighting the DAZNs of the world and all the other platforms that are out there. I think that he really gets his his motivation through starting from something and watching it grow over time. Yeah, he is he is a very competitive person, um, and I think that this is that new venture. This is that that new opportunity for him to prove that he and the UFC um, are, are a force to be reckoned with. And so far, he's he's been right. So far, I, I think he lacked that after successful. after the sale. I don't think he had that. It was, you know, we've won. We have, we have made more than this company ever could have envisioned being valued for. And, uh, and I think that they were looking for that next, um, you know, that, that next project, that what is his next thing to go after and build. And I think that at least now there is that thing in ESPN plus where, I mean, they are relying very heavily on the UFC and putting a lot of their chips on this company to help drive fight fans to purchase this service. Yeah, and, and I think it has already um, been very successful in the sense that um, the initial ESPN subscription, uh, ESPN Plus subscriptions um, were very high based around um, that first event, fight night event in Brooklyn. So um, it, has, it has been uh, good for both sides so far. Uh, as we rewind to this past weekend, the UFC was in London. Now, first of all, uh, both you and I uh, have become fathers over the last two years. Are you pro or con to these afternoon cards? Pro, super pro. Um, let's uh, let's knock them out so that I have uh, more time to do other things rather than you know having to prepare and then sit there um, and and you know get ready for fight night and then fight night comes and then I'm falling asleep. Um, let's knock them out in the afternoon and and heck, my my daughter Avery can sit there and enjoy with me. See, I am a, I, I am a night owl. I find during the day are very tough to watch these cards. So it is, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I have now, now as uh, they have moved the start times earlier, it's at a time when the 10 p.m. start time isn't as daunting for me a any longer. I, so we're, on, we're, on, we're living different lives right now. I have for 30 plus years of my life been a night owl. 
Now <laughs> I have a child and I commute two hours each way to Bristol, Connecticut. I oh, have boy. very quickly become a morning person um, and I much enjoy uh, that afternoon fight card. Well, I mean, so much focus was on uh, Jorge Masvidal and Leon Edwards coming out of this, but uh, preceding it was a knockout of the year contender with Jorge Masvidal's uh, just that left hand to Darren Till. And I don't know about you, but I felt that Masvidal coming out of this weekend, he had a bit of that vibe that Nate Diaz did after the Michael Johnson fight, where it just feels like here is this veteran that has all of this cred amongst fighters, amongst fans, and he just felt that... You know, he's on the cusp of becoming something uh, special within the welterweight division. I'm not stating this guy could necessarily become welterweight champion. I would not favor him in such a fight with Kamaru Usman. But to me, he came out a bigger star than he did going in this past weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, unfortunately for him, and I I know he feels this way. He spoke to Ariel on his show uh, on Monday about this. Unfortunately, that incredible knockout is being overshadowed by the the post-fight scuffle, the post-fight altercation, and then the subsequent interview. But suffice it to say, from knockout to scuffle to uh, post-fight interview with ESPN's Brett Akimoto, he has capitalized on all this beautifully. He has he he has ingratiated himself in a way that he hasn't been able to previously with fans. I think he was always one of the fighters that people liked, um, people respected. But I don't think saw the the star making potential until uh, Saturday night, and now he has uh, fully capitalized on that. You know, every hardcore fight fan is going to cringe at my next question, but <laughs> in this modern era, and you know, being part of that news cycle is of the utmost importance. And you, it's you're talking about a roster of 500 fighters. You're trying to separate yourself from the pack. Is there is there more value in a three-piece and a soda versus that <laughs> knockout over Darren Till. Like, that to me is going to be the enduring part of this weekend is going to be people gravitating towards that quote more so than even the knockout. Like, I think you need both elements in your presentation, but that's such a big part of it now that I feel that it, one's almost as important as the other, is it not? Absolutely. They're inextricably linked. Neither one on its own is going to get it done. You can have that highlight highlight real knockout, but then this sport is so what have you done for me lately? The next knockout is going to replace that one and and your old news. Three piece and a soda, however, is something that extends the shelf life of that and extends the the George Masvidal story, extends his his you know, entry into the conversation for so much longer. So, um I agree with you. I think both elements are absolutely required. It's it's the it's you know, I was about to say it's the secret to the success, success, but it's not a secret. It is the recipe to the success of Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor wasn't just a mouth on his way up. I think people have have maybe looked back at that differently than what actually happened. On his way up, he was lancing everybody. He was absolutely destroying people. And not only that, he went in and, and defeated Jose Aldo in 13 seconds. There was there was a connection between the things he was saying outside of the cage and the things he was doing inside the cage that made that that perfect storm um, you know, possible for him. And I think that Masvidal has has been able to, in one single night, do something similar. Now, what he does with that moving forward is going to be interesting and is going to be the key. But he's already dropped dropped himself into the top ten of the rankings um, alongside guys like Ben Askren and other people who I think will give him not only a challenge inside the cage but a challenge outside the cage in terms of uh, promotion, um, which is, which is a good place to be if you're if you're George Masvidal. 
I think this welterweight division is so interesting at the moment with just so many different players. And we've got two more this weekend that we'll talk about in Stephen Thompson taking on Anthony Pettis, yeah. uh, who not all that long ago was fighting at featherweight, which is insane. <laughs> uh, but but what is next for Masvidal? I think that Leon Edwards, I, I don't know if there's necessarily that incentive for Masvidal uh, to fight him, but I think that is the pairing everyone is looking towards. I think you have to do that fight. I think you have to, again, you know, they, they've they've gotten this dropped into their lap, and I think they have to capitalize on it. Um, there, there's not a better fight, I don't think, for Masvidal that will um, have the, the built-in storyline. Now, you know, um, uh, Ben Askren has not been shy about calling out anybody and everybody, um, but I don't think that there's the genuine heat there like there is with, a, with some of the other um, confrontations and, and, and rivalries at the top of the welterweight division with this one, you have it ready made, you have it built in, you have to do Leon Edwards versus, uh, George Masvidal. And where does Ben Askren, uh, land here? He's yeah. got a lot of options. I can, you know, I, I, I could honestly see a, a scenario where if Steven Thompson wins, I mean, that's a contender for him. Uh, I think that there's, I don't think that there's necessarily a bad option at the moment for Ben Askren either. That's the that's the beauty of what Ben Askren has been able to do with not only his career, but that fight against Robbie Lawler is there's enough uncertainty on whether he's still good or still bad leaving that fight that he really has unlimited options. He's put himself in a very good position and, and maybe not intentionally. So with the, with the Robbie Lawler fight, um, but he's put himself in a position where fans still don't know, Hey, was he beating up cans before he got to the UFC? Is he any good or is he just a mouth? And the answer to that question still hasn't been proven, even though he has a win over Robbie Lawler, there was controversy in how that win was achieved. So he almost by having this mystery around him has unlimited options because he was catapulted into the top, 10 i think he's number six at this moment or number five um i would like to see ben askren versus kamara usman versus the the person he calls marty um i know that colby covington and kamara usman um have some some heat as well and i know that there's a rivalry there i'm more interested at this moment myself in seeing ben askren versus kamara usman and then i'd love to see colby covington versus tyron woodley that one was simmering for for a good bit and it seemed like we were on the verge of getting it I would like to see the culmination of that. So that would be my choice if I was if I was fantasy booking the uh, welterweight division. I, I think that he's found a, an amazing way to navigate a very complex division in in the immediate time that he's been in this division, and that is, you know, he is th- he is casting a ton of lines into the water and just hoping <laughs> one of them is going to bite for him, and all of them have varying value to them, and the way in which he beat. Robbie Lawler, I mean, it was something that you could see many fighters maybe walking it back and not really owning it. Not Ben Askren. And I think that's (laughs) the part that was the the value in that one was completely owning that win and treating it as such. Like that to me was pro wrestling heel 101 of just like going into the territory, beating the baby face through nefarious means and having more heat the next time he comes back. What's amazing about that matchup is that that was the one person he didn't call out. That was the one fight he didn't actually want was against Robbie Lawler because he liked Robbie Lawler. Everybody else was on his hit list. Everybody else got some, some uh, venom spewed at them, whether it was on social media and interviews, it didn't matter. Um, And then he leaves that fight 
uh, being able to, to, to still heal it up, even though he had respect for Robbie Lawler. It's, it's incredible that what he's been able to do. And I do think there was one missed opportunity from coming out of London, which is that he was building a, a really good program to steal a, a wrestling term with Darren Till. Um, that seemed like it was going to reach ahead if Darren Till was able to get past George Masvidal, but that one blew up. So he's a little bit in no man's land. But as we said, he, him being in no man's land is almost that he has unlimited options because he's been able to to be so savvy with it. Um, kudos to uh, to Ben Askren. So and the the welterweight story continues this weekend with uh, Stephen Thompson taking on Anthony Pettis. This one's taking place in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's the latest reinvention of Anthony Pettis. Do you think that this is um, this is a smart move going towards uh, welterweight because this has been a guy that has thrown a lot against the walls over the last five years. Some has stuck, some has not. Yeah, I think Anthony Pettis is just looking for for some consistency. He hasn't been able to really find that. Um, and I think without having to worry about the weight cut, he does have an opportunity here um, to prove his, his skill set rather than having to worry about making that weight. Now, the drop to featherweight, I think, is ill-advised, no doubt about it. He, he was a very um, highly ranked contender at lightweight after he was a champion at lightweight. I don't think featherweight was ever the right uh, move for him. I think rather than going down, the move was always up. Now, I don't know how his his frame is going to look at 170. It's going to be interesting to see because Thompson is not a small 170. Um, but I do think stylistically he has an opportunity here to showcase some of his skills um, that he might not have um, against wrestlers and and, and other um, fighters in the 170-pound division. So I do think this is an opportunity to see Anthony Pettis at his best against Stephen Thompson, and I think this is an opportunity to see Stephen Thompson at his best against Anthony Pettis. I'm really excited about this fight. I think stylistically it's, it's a really intriguing one um but i don't know how it will it will dictate future success for anthony pettis because the top of the 170 pound division is a litany of killer wrestlers um and i do and i you know whether whether you agree or not i, I do think there has to be an objective measure of anthony pettis's success against wrestlers and i don't think it's been very good i do think that is his kryptonite and i do think he will eventually run into that at 170 but for now we get the exciting matchup against Stephen Thompson, and I do think that that will will lead to a, a really uh, beautiful fight. Yeah, it's it's maybe the toughest division to enter into at the moment, and as well from just a strategic standpoint, uh, with two two people that he is very close with in Tyron Woodley and Ben Askren that are occupying this division as well. Yeah. Um, two of the wrestlers that I mentioned. So that, that is true. They are teammates at, at Rufus Sport. So maybe that takes them out of the equation. But then you're still, deal, you're still dealing with the, the Colby Covingtons of the world and the, ben, and the, uh, the, the, you know, the other rest of the uh, top of the welterweight division. So, um, yeah, I like the move for Pettis because I don't like seeing him um, trying to suck out all that weight. Um, but we'll see if this is the permanent home or if he has you know, second thoughts after this fight and, and returns to 155. Final topic here. This past weekend, they announced uh, Michael Bisping going into the UFC Hall of Fame this July. He will be part of the Modern Wing. Uh, they played this great video for him at the O2 Arena in London, and the reception afterwards was uh, just a great scene uh, in London. Uh, when you think Michael Bisping, I'm certain that you can isolate many different chapters <laughs> of his career because that's how it went in very, very different and distinct chapters from the guy that entered the ultimate fighter in 2006 to the one that became middleweight champion to uh three years ago now we're coming up on uh 
but what to, what is the defining moment for you uh, with Michael Bisping? Is it the title win or is it something different? It, to me, it's the title win, but the title win extended. I liked Surly Champion Michael Bisping. That was my favorite Michael Bisping. My favorite Michael Bisping was in the lead up to the, to the Luke Rockhold fight um, and then becoming champion. And then um, the post-fight press conference. I just, I loved everything about that, like Surly Bisping. Um, much more so than I liked when, uh, he was on the way up. I, I wasn't, um, I, I was always, I was always paying attention to Michael Bisping, no matter what he did, he was always good at drawing your eye. Now, then you get into the conversation of, did you like Michael Bisping? And that's, a, that's one that I don't know how to answer. Um, I didn't love when, you know, he was spitting in the face of, of, uh, Jorge Rivera that was, you know, out, out of sorts. And then, um, you know, some of the other things that he did along, along that journey, um, took me away from Michael Bisbing. But when he was, when he was in the second resurgence of his career and he was on his way to the title and then capturing the title, um, that, that Michael Bisbing who just couldn't wait to stick it to the world was my favorite Michael Bisbing. I, I think in a weird way, it was also, you know, becoming one of those hosts on UFC tonight. I think you got to, he, suddenly became like the the veteran that you were rooting for that people I yeah. think, got to see a lot more of his personality and that seemed to be the beginning of that transition from the the villain to more to somewhat of a beloved figure i won't yeah. say completely beloved by everybody but also understood his role that if i am opposing george st pierre I am not getting out cheered against George St. Pierre, so I better be the best villain possible because <laughs> that is what people want. That's a very simple story, and it works time after time. And I, I think he, much like we just talked about with Ben Askren, always wanted to have as many lines in the water as possible, knowing that at any given point, he has a fight. Yeah, villain is the perfect way to describe what I was trying to say, but but sputtering along with. He was the villain, and at some point he became he became the hero, but the hero with a little bit of edge, maybe the anti-hero, um, and he played that role really, really well. I, I remember one interview I did with him, and this was uh, UFC 186 that week going into uh, – he was fighting CB Dalloway. So this is after the first Luke Rockhold loss, and – People are pretty much counting out Michael Bisping as ever being a title contender at this point. And he had been talking that week that he still is going to become middleweight champion. And I asked him something to the degree of like, what is your path to that, to that championship given your, your current situation? And, you know, most fighters, you're going to get some kind of philosophical, uh, explanation that it's like, okay, a lot of self belief is usually the end conclusion. Michael Bisping, gave me this path where he pretty much outlined the number of fights he would need to go through. At this time, Chris Weidman's the champion. He forecasted that he didn't believe he'd end up fighting Chris Weidman. Weidman would lose the title along the way. (laughs) And he pretty much, like, I would have to pull out this quote, but it is unbelievable how he pretty much called what was going to happen over the next two years that would lead to him becoming middleweight champion. And he did it in less time than that. Yeah, if if anybody has ever watched um, the MMA Hour or or previously the MMA Hour, now Ariel Hawani's MMA show, for a long time, I've always been rallying against the narrative that Michael Bisbing will not win the UFC title or not be in the title picture because he has always been good at keeping himself relevant. And that was the thing that would always keep him um, as, as an option um, in those matchups. So I'm not surprised that he was able to predict that. I do think it's it's funny um, that he was able to predict that to such a, a specific degree because when Luke Rockhold 
um, at one of the, uh, I believe it was the pre-fight press conference for the, for their second fight, was talking about believing and achieving and succeeding. Uh, Michael Bisbing mocked him, um, but was able to manifest that himself. So um, a, a nod of the cap to, to Michael Bisbing. Wow, what a what a perfect touchstone to that analogy. Uh, fantastic <laughs> stuff. Uh, well, New York Rick, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me here and for all of the people out there that just can't get enough of uh, just uh, 40 minutes here. Where can they get more? They can get more uh, on Twitter at New York Rick, spelled R-I-C. Um, and uh, you can follow ESPN MMA as well. I'm involved in uh, in the social media over at ESPN MMA. One of the big movers and shakers in the industry, New York Rick, giving us some time here at Post Wrestling. Thanks to everyone for joining us, and we will be back uh, later on today with lots more coming your way. Go check out postwrestling.com and give the man a follow at New York Rick.